if any children are uh, going to go to children's worship, you're, you're dismissed now to meet uh, Mr. Brett and Miss April in the back. Let us pray. Father, we have just sung a magnificent prayer. I, I ask, Lord, that this would truly be the words that our hearts delight in, that you would speak. Lord, that you would help us to grasp the heights of your plans for us. Lord, that you would renew our minds, that you would transform our hearts. Lord, that because of your word, you would, you would work in our lives to change us and to mold us and to shape us by your Holy Spirit and by your word. And so, Lord, as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would do this for your name, for your glory, for no other reason but for your glory, Father. That you might show and display your goodness and your grace toward us. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The title of the message this morning is The Unbelief of the World. And we come to a text in John chapter 12. If, if you've not been with us in a few weeks, or, or maybe this is your first time with us, we've been walking through the Gospel of John chapter 12, and we have arrived at verse 37, which is where we will begin this morning. John twelve thirty-seven. But just to give you a little bit of background as to what's been happening up until this point, John chapter 12 ends Jesus' public ministry. Throughout all the first 12 chapters, Jesus has been in ministry publicly among all of the crowds in the region where he has been at the Sea of Galilee and into Jerusalem. And he has been publicly ministering, performing signs and, and discipling and teaching and sharing discourses. And so we come to this point in chapter 12 and we come to the point where we saw last week that he is speaking out of the arrival of the hour of his glorification. He says the hour of my glorification is now here in verse 34. No, I'm sorry, in verse 27, my soul has become troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. And in verse 23 of chapter 12, And Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So chapter 12 is the culmination of his public ministry. It's this last public discourse that John records for us. And the Gospel of 12 is what we will look at this morning. And as the narrative advances, Jesus has, has already admonished the crowd that was following him and walking behind him. He's already admonished them and called them to, to walk and to believe. We saw that in verses 35 and 36 here in chapter 12. Two commands that we see in those verses. One is walk, walk in the light. The second one is believe, believe in the light so that you would become sons of light, he says. And so he calls them to this based on what they have seen and what they have heard. Then he disappears in verse 36 as if he's enacting a a living parable demonstrating how what he has spoken, the light is only with you for a little while, verse 35, and then it disappears. He himself has hidden from the crowd there in verse 36. 
verse 36, the second part. These things Jesus spoke, and he went away and hid himself from them. So get the picture of what's going on. Jesus has been teaching. He's been doing signs and works, and he gets to the end of his public ministry, and he is about, he's in the last week of his life, the Passion Week. He's about to head to the cross, and so when he speaks about the hour of his glorification, he is speaking about his turning his face and moving toward the cross. He is heading to the cross as he has approached Jerusalem. And so in verse 37, John tells us how we are to understand, how we should understand chapter 12. And really, he's speaking about Jesus' entire public ministry. Verse 37 says, But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. What we see in this text this morning, in a moment we'll read the, the entirety of the text, verses 37 through 50. But what we see in this text this morning is this, that Jesus Christ, the incarnate word and miracle worker, is the window through which all creation is able to view the glory of God. His light has pierced our darkness. That's what John wants us to see. The light of Christ has pierced the darkness that we live in. The darkness of the world. The darkness of sin. And so if you found your place in verse 37 of John chapter 12, say amen. Follow along as I, as I read. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord... Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. And Jesus cried out and said, He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The the word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. For I did not ask, I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore, the things I speak, I speak just as the Father has told me. First this morning, I want us to see in this text, darkness and blindness, light and Sight, darkness and blindness, light and sight. I believe these are the two 
points that John is showing us in verses 37 through 43. He certainly has, has, has capitalized or has already spoken about it in verses 35 and 36. And the imagery of light within the Gospel of John is, is not a new image for us as we, as we read through by the time we get to chapter 12. But the real question that John is confronting here, because remember, he's, he's writing 70 years, 35 years maybe, to 40, after, 45 even, after Christ's resurrection and ascension. And so he's writing to the early church. The church has been established at this point. And as he's writing to the church, we see he's really answering this question. Why didn't the people of God accept God's Messiah when he came? Why didn't the people of God accept God's Messiah when he came? This was a difficult question that the early early Christians were facing and having to deal with. And it it even calls to mind, it calls our attention to John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, those theme verses in the Gospel of John, which read this, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in his presence, in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. You see, John is is pointing us to see, as he is writing to the early church, he wants us to see the signs and the works that Jesus has done as pointing us to see the glory of God revealed in the incarnate Christ. And so the question we, we ask then, why didn't the people of God accept God's Messiah when he came? That's the question that we ask of then. That's the question they ask then. Why didn't God's people believe in God's Messiah? Why did they reject God's Messiah and then the question that we ask now that I want us to see, so there's, there's a question we ask of then to understand the text, right? And then there's a question we ask of now to bridge our understanding. And that question that I want us to ask this morning about now, understanding the then and the now of the text, is this, how should the church respond in the midst of such unbelief? We see there's great unbelief then, They saw the signs, but they rejected. They would not believe. How then should the church respond in the midst of such unbelief? But first, let us look at then. Verses 37 through 41. They would not believe. Verse 37 is clear. It says that in the midst of, in spite of the the signs that he had performed, they would not believe. Even raising Lazarus from the dead would not convince them to believe. Even opening the eyes of the blind man to see and have light where he had been blind his life, all of his life, and now he can see. Even those miracles don't produce faith in the life of many in the crowd. And so they would not believe. And I think just a real practical question that we might consider or ask this morning is, why would a person remain in darkness and not come to the light? I mean, think about it. Why would a person remain in the darkness? Think about if you were in a cave. It's dark. It's pitch black. You can't see. You can't even see your, your hand in front of your face. Maybe some of the youth experienced that this week as they, were, as they went caving. You can't see a thing. And in, in the midst of darkness, you, you don't know which way really is up or down or, or, or side to side. You just There's nothing that you can see. 
And then imagine just all of a sudden this, this window of light was there and appeared and, and this beam of light shined through the midst of the darkness. It would be ridiculous to think that a person in the midst of that darkness would not walk toward that light. They would see that light as, as the way of escape. They would see that light as, as salvation, as the way out of the darkness. This kind of imagery, I think, helps us to see the importance of Christ's earthly ministry. The signs, John is telling us, the signs that Jesus has performed were like a beam of light piercing through the darkness of fallen creation, revealing God's glory to His creation. Jesus Christ, the incarnate Word, was lighting the way of salvation out of darkness. Yet they, they would not believe. They were not believing. In verse 38, John quotes from Isaiah 53.1. In the chapter on, this is the chapter in, John, in uh, Isaiah 53 of, of the suffering servant. And in quoting from this chapter, he's telling us the Jews' rejection of their Messiah was a present-day fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Look at what he says in verse 38. Lord, who had, in fact, verse 38, the beginning of it, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In other words, what John is saying here of Jesus is, as Jesus is here at the end of his public ministry... Lord, who has believed our report? Who has believed the teaching and the words that Jesus has spoken? And who, who, has, who has seen or, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? The, the miracles that Christ has worked, all of, all of them have pointed to show the glory of God, to show that Christ Himself is the agent of redemption sent by God the Father to redeem His creation. (laughs) And John has already prepared us for this in the prologue. If you think back with me, or maybe even turn to John chapter 1, verse 5. He says, The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not, what? Comprehend it, or didn't overcome it. In John 1.10, He was in the world, and the world was made through Him. And the world did not know Him. Verse 11, He came to His own, and those who were His own did not receive Him. You see, John's already prepared us to understand how the Jews would respond to their Messiah. In chapter 3, verse 19 of John, He says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, And men loved darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. So here's a question. Why then would a person remain in darkness and not come to the light? You seem to understand their deeds were evil. There is a rejection. There is a love for darkness. John has been communicating this to us throughout his gospel as he's teaching us and and, and, and preaching and speaking and writing to the early church. We see that in the midst of darkness, they loved darkness darkness rather than light they had refused to believe so they rejected there's a responsibility attached in verse 37 yet they were not believing in him or they would not believe in him but then we also have in verses 39 and 40 
that they could not believe in him. Do you see that in verse 39? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes. This time he's quoting from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10, where Dr. David read a few moments ago. He's blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. You know, the focus here, it's a little different than Isaiah's writing. Here, John focuses only on the eyes and the heart. The focus on the eyes calls our attention back to John chapter 9 with the healing of the blind man where he has given sight now to a man who had been born blind. He has done a work that is miraculous. He's brought light into the midst of darkness. And then he speaks about the heart. They, they've just seen the raising of Lazarus from the dead. But what they have to do yet, what they still need to do, is place faith and trust in Christ, the Messiah, the one who has raised Lazarus. But instead, they refuse. They refuse to place their faith in him. And John is telling us they, they would not believe in verse 37. They're responsible for their rejection and refusing to believe in Jesus, but also that they could not believe, verse 39, meaning they were unable And so he uses Isaiah chapter 6 verse 10 to describe God's sovereign activity within his creation. And just to be quite honest this morning, this this is really a depth and a a mystery of a statement that we we come to oftentimes in Scripture and we we just can't quite make sense of it and and, and we have to accept, We, we, we can't completely understand the way of God's sovereign hand at work in the midst of his people and and why he acts and, and works in the ways that he does. But here's what we can understand. John is giving us a theological glimpse of God's grace through Christ and his judgment on those who reject Christ as Messiah. And we see here in this text, as John brings it to light for us, we see both the fulfillment of Scripture and the culpability or the responsibility of the Jews who reject redemption and refuse the Messiah. And so we see in verse 39 that it it ties unbelief of the people with verses 38 and verse 40. Verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. Verse 38, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet in keeping with prophetic prediction. And verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their hearts, so they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. J.O.H. Murray said this, Leon Morris quoted him in, in his commentary, he says this, it is by God's appointment, you can follow along, Uh, on the screen, it's by God's appointment that if his word does not quicken, it must deaden. Sinners never defeat the purpose of God. They may rebel against God and defy God. They may proclaim that, that they care nothing for his will and that they are determined to live completely for their own happiness. But none of all this affects the fact that God is a great God 
and that he works out his purpose in the sin that people commit as well as the good that they may accomplish. See, here's the thing. They, they would not believe and they could not believe. Which is it? It's both. I want to point out three distinctions for us as we process this passage in this text and what John is saying. I, I think these are important distinctions, and, and I want to point them out here for our understanding. The first one is this. God's sovereignty is, understand this, God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility Throughout Scripture, instead, it, it works alongside human responsibility. You see it in, in tandem. And so, don't overlook that this morning as we process this text. That's the first distinction. God's sovereignty is never pitted against human responsibility. It works alongside human responsibility. The, the second distinction that we need to understand as we come to this text is this, we're not morally neutral creatures. Look at verse 40 at the end. The idea is conveyed, lest they be converted, and I, what? I heal them, right? Implying there is a need for healing. Implying there, there is a brokenness in our humanity. And it speaks of the sin-sick depravity of our humanity, of our souls, that we are all in need of redemption. We're all in need of being repaired, remade, made new, converted. And so sin has brought brokenness, and we need healing. God's judicial hardening is the condemnation of a guilty people who are condemned to do and to be what they have chosen. You understand? And so there is this working out here of they would not believe because they were rejecting, but they could not believe because Scripture has said it so. The third point, our distinction I, I want to make here is it's an important one. And it's this we need to look at the big picture of Scripture. That is the meta narrative, the historical narrative of Scripture. God's sovereign hardening of his people in Isaiah's day and Isaiah's prophetic ministry, which bore little fruit, it reveals a stage in God's sovereign plan of redemption. This is a stage in God's sovereign plan of bringing redemption to the world. In fact, Paul, Paul walks through this same point in Romans chapter 9 through 11. And in 11.25 he says this, For I do not want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery, so that you will not be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles comes in. You see, this is a stage in God's redemptive history and His sovereign plan of bringing redemption. So we need to look at the big picture, the historical narrative of Scripture from creation to eternal glorification, and we need to ask one question. What time is it? As we're making this jump from then to now, 
What time is it? John tells us in verse 41 that when Isaiah saw the vision of God's glory in the temple, that, listen to this, he saw the pre-incarnate Christ. That's what John is saying there in verse 41. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory. And he spoke of him. Jesus is the antecedent. He saw his glory pointing to Christ. And so for those Jews rejecting Jesus... It was the time of his glorious visitation, right? The incarnate word. God stepped down in the form of man, God the Son, becoming man, taking upon flesh, and visiting his creation, walking among his people. So then, it is the time of his glorious visitation. For John's readers, it's a time of continued ministry through the Holy Spirit in the life of his church. So the then of the text reveals Christ's glorious coming as the shining beam of light radiating the glory of God through his physical presence and through the signs and the wonders he performed. All of it, all of it points, points us to see God's self-disclosure to his creation. And here's the thing, unbelief was characterizing the day. The glory of God shining through the window, a beam of light into the darkness, healing, healing sickness, raising men from the dead, casting out blindness and giving sight. God's glory was on display. Many people saw and they would not believe because their hearts were hard and their eyes were blind. And listen, they refused to believe Jesus. As we consider the now, we turn our attention to verses 42 and 43. The unbelief was characteristic in the Jews uh, of the Jews in Jesus' day. But here's what we need to understand. Unbelief is characteristic of the world in our day. Many reject Christ. They reject his word. They reject the testimony of believers. They reject the testimony of God by rejecting the testimony of his word. And so the question of now... How should the church respond in the midst of such unbelief? So I want to give you three points of application to see how the church should respond in the midst of unbelief. And the first one is this. The church, we we must see the church on mission. That is to say, we must see and understand the mission of the church. What, What time is it? Today we ask the question, what time is it in the midst of the big, grand, historical narrative? What time is it? It is time for the church to be on mission with God. As we read and study and listen to God's word, we we must look for our directive from Scripture. The darkness that was present in in Jesus' day is still present today. And here's the thing, it's saturated every day area of God's good creation. 
And the glory of Christ, which Isaiah saw filling the temple, that glory which pierced the darkness through Christ's physical presence and manifesting his power through signs and wonders, that glory now, get this, that glory now pierces the darkness through the church, through the disciples. That glory pierces the darkness of creation even today as many are in unbelief. So Christ came to redeem God's good creation. He didn't fail as many Jews were claiming who were not believing. As the church witnessed to the ministry and the work of Christ, many would claim that Jesus the Messiah, if that's the one you believe in, he failed. But here's the thing. Darkness has touched every area of creation from church to family to business to education to society. Every, every area. But Christ our Redeemer is at work through his church to redeem his creation. He's at work through the life of his community, of the, of the church globally, to redeem creation, to redeem and restore the brokenness of humanity. The church on mission with God is the church that is embracing this role, this calling to re- be the agents of redemption in the midst of creation. The second point of application I want us to see under the now time is is this. Private faith is a weak faith. Private faith is at best a weak faith. Verses 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many, even of the rulers, believed in him. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue. Listen, for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. You see, to follow Jesus is to tell one's friends about Christ, despite the social consequences. To follow Jesus is to be bold in our declaration of what He has done in our life. There is no there is no privatized faith in Christianity and being a disciple of Christ. He calls us to live out our faith. Walk in the light, not in the darkness. We must walk in the light of Christ. And so the challenge is that we would live out our faith, brothers and sisters. We would not have a privatized faith, but we would have a very public faith. A very challenging question that we could ask of this point in the text is, did their unwillingness to stand with Jesus publicly invalidate their faith? Then the natural question we would ask of our own lives is, we say we believe in Christ. Are we willing to stand publicly for Christ? Are we willing to be bold in our speech, to stand firm and stand our ground as we encounter people in the world, as we encounter the darkness and sin, even in our own lives? But are are we willing and are we able and are we standing firm for the gospel 
What does this say to believers today in our modern context who've privatized their faith and are unwilling to go public with their faith? Jesus isn't looking for private disciples. Jesus is looking for very public disciples. Listen, the mission of the church is about redemption, not about maintaining. It's about going out and evangelizing the law. It's about knowing what Christ has done in our life to transform us and experiencing the joy of that transformation. And then we share that with others. Why? Because we can't keep it in. The third point of application I want us to see from the now is this. We are all ministers of vocation. We are all ministers of vocation. I, I want to explain this to you. We tend to think of vocational ministry today in these terms of, well, the pastor, uh, elder. We, we tend to think of it as the, the missionary. But no, understand what, what walking with Christ is, a, is about. Christ shines the light of God's glory through the church, and he shines it the brightest through the church today. Each of us, here's the thing, each of us in our vocations need to see God's calling on our lives as ministers within that vocation in which he has placed us. 2 Corinthians 5 talks about us being ambassadors for Christ we ourselves, each one of us, in the vocation that he's given us, be it, be it stay-at-home mom, the corporate exec, the, the, the retired man or woman, we must see our vocation as the place and the platform of our ministry. There are many varieties of our vocational calling, but they all have a common denominator. And it's this, we are Christ's redemptive agents in the midst of darkness. Our lives corporately and then individually become the window through which God gloriously shines the light of Christ displaying his goodness in the midst of creation. And it's God who is at work through the church, through the believer, to reform the evil in his creation. And it's God, through Christ, who redeems through the church that which is broken of humanity. Brothers and sisters, God desires, Christ desires to use our lives for his glory. The second half of the text this morning is the last discourse of our Lord Jesus. And in this last discourse, he speaks of authority and evidence that he is the only way of salvation. And so here it is. Here is the message of the gospel. These are all... these. It's as if Jesus is some. It's not as if he is. He's summing up the heart of his public ministry and teaching in these closing verses from verses 44 through 50. And these are themes that John has already laid out that Jesus has already spoke about throughout the entirety of the Gospel of John. And so there are three pieces of evidence to support that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And the first one is this. Jesus is God's agent of redemption to the world. We see it in verses 44 and 45. And Jesus cried out and said, 
He who believes in me does not believe in me, but in him who sent me. He who sees me sees the one who sent me. You see, believing in Jesus is to believe God for salvation. This faith is one that trusts in God's supreme self-disclosure of himself to his creation. God the Son walked the earth. He suffered and he died to give eternal life to all who trust in his work on the cross. Jesus is saying in verses 44 and 45, salvation and eternal life depends on how a person responds to him. You see that? Salvation and eternal life depends on how a person responds to Christ. Church, this is our declaration. We declare and praise Christ as the one who has redeemed creation. He has redeemed our humanity. The second piece of evidence that he gives is in verse 46. I've come as a light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. That is, Jesus Christ himself is the light of the world. As the light of the world, get this, he is the revealer of God. We've, we've seen that in, in chapter 1, verse 18 in the prologue of John's gospel. It says that he is the one who is uniquely able to explain the Father to us. So Christ here, as the light coming into the world, he shows men, reveals to men how to move out of darkness into the light of God's eternity. So as the revealer of God, he explains the Father to us and the mystery of our salvation is understood in Christ. That is to say that believing in Christ gives us light to see our need of salvation from darkness and from sin. The third piece of evidence he gives us is in verses 47 and 48. Jesus says his word will bring judgment. If anyone hears my sayings and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. He who rejects me and does not receive my sayings has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. These are tough words. Jesus is saying the very words that I have spoken, they will judge a person on the last day on that day of judgment. Which means every person who has ever heard the gospel will be judged according to the words that they have heard. Every person according to what Scripture has spoken. The words that Christ has spoken, these are the words of God the Father. Jesus, as the Messiah, has spoken God's revelation to us. And so Jesus says, I don't judge, but the words that I spoke, they'll judge on the last day. He's saying, he's saying this because his spoken word points us to the written word. And the written word points us to the living word. And we know that the living word is Jesus Christ, the incarnate one. 
John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then we see in verse 14, in Him was life, and the li- or in verse 14, rather, He says, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And what? We beheld His glory. The glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth and so we see Christ himself the word becomes flesh and so he says here in verse 48 it is the word I spoke that will judge him at the last day in other words all those who have heard the gospel will be judged according to the gospel they will be judged according to those words which they have heard and rejected they will be judged by what they have refused to believe and the reason is because his word is the very word of God the evidence that Jesus gives us is clear Jesus is God's agent of redemption to the world he is the light of the world giving light in the midst of men's darkness and sin, redeeming us from sin, and His Word will bring judgment ultimately. What we do with Christ and how we respond to Christ determines how we live. After hearing the evidence that Jesus states, one, one might ask, but based on whose authority? How can He make this claim? How can he make this claim to be the only one to hold eternal life? The only way, out of all the other ways that could possibly be, how could he be the only one to have the only way to get to the Father? What authority does he base this on? Verses 49 and 50, he tells us it's based on God's authority. For I I did not speak on my own initiative, he says, but... The Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. In other words, Jesus says he spoke what the Father commanded. For Jesus, the command of the Father shapes his life and his speech, everything about him. And it points him to the cross to give eternal life. And so the consequences of belief or rejection work themselves out for them in the present even for us now in the present. Jesus has shown the signs and the miracles as attesting to his authority, the Father's authority. And then he calls us to see those same works that were done and are testified about in Scripture and to apply them and, and, and to, 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 believe, to believe on them in our own response, in our own lives. If a person had a curable disease, such as malaria, and they were given medicine to take in order to cure the disease, medicine like malarum, the same medicine that prevents it is the same medicine that will cure it in strong doses. And if they take that medicine, they'll be cured of the disease. In fact, as soon as a person begins taking the medicine, it it begins working and reversing the effects of the disease. But without the medicine, the doom of infection will set in and grow daily. 
See, the disease plaguing humanity is sin. It's, it's darkness. The authority and the evidence of Jesus' life-giving words are like the medicine to cure the disease. And to reject the medicine is to succumb to the deadly disease. Jesus is saying those who reject the light of his salvation will be swallowed up in darkness. You see, church, this is a warning for our day. We need to see, as Jesus hid from the crowd in verse 36, and as God blinded those who rejected the light in verse 40, likewise, God's judgment can fall in the present on a people who have utterly rejected him. I urge you this morning, I urge you today, that today is the day of salvation. Repent of sin and believe in Christ. It's Jesus Christ who is the Savior and the Redeemer who loved the world enough to die on the cross in our stead. He became our substitute on the cross and satisfied the wrath of God against sin. I urge you today, do not reject the gospel If you have not believed, don't reject God's offer of salvation. Church, it's the time for us to be about living and proclaiming the glorious message of Christ's salvation. We as the church are to be on mission with God. We, we do this by reaching our community with the gospel. We do this by, by living the gospel in our vocation, by being ministers of vocation. How can Crosspoint serve our community as a congregation, as a church? How can we serve our community? How can we be a blessing to those that are in this surrounding area of even the church campus. How can we do that for the glory of God? I invite you to dream with me. Ask God to reveal how we can do that, how we can show the blessing of His name in the midst of our city. Believer, do you see yourself as a minister of vocation? Do you see how God wants to use you to bring light in the midst of darkness? I pray that you do. If you've never responded to the Lord Jesus Christ and the prompting work of salvation in your life, I want to encourage you this morning, if the Holy Spirit is leading you to repent of your sin, to confess that Jesus is Lord and to believe upon the work of redemption through the cross and the resurrection and then the ascension in his giving of the Spirit. If that, if that describes where you're at this morning and, and the decision that you sense the Lord leading you to make, I want to encourage you to pray just a prayer of commitment to the Father. Surrender your life to Christ. Ask him to be your Lord. If that's you this morning, I want to encourage you, do not reject Do not reject Christ. Believe upon Him. Profess faith in Him. And if that's you, I want to be able to pray with you. 
So maybe you would even want to come up this morning and say, you know what, that's what I've done. I've, I've surrendered my life to Christ. Or maybe you want to find me after service and say, you know what, I've surrendered my life to Christ. I want you to know that that invitation for you to respond in that way is open. Maybe for you, believer, maybe it, maybe it means saying, you know what, God, I've not been looking at my vocation as a place of ministry. And I, I confess that I've not, I've not done that. And I, I need to do that. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. Or maybe for you, it's a matter of commitment to the church. Maybe it's a matter of being part of the body of Christ. I'm saying we want to be united with, with a church body that, that walks and has a desire to impact the nations and desire to impact the community for the glory of Christ, to be on mission with God. Maybe that's where you're at this morning. I want to encourage you to respond as the Lord is leading you Vocalize prayer, sing a song, and in worshiping Him, praise Him, praise His glory. Let us respond this morning as the Lord leads. I want to invite you to stand. <clears throat> and I'm going to pray for us. And then the worship team's going to come and lead us in song. Let us pray. Father, as we consider Your Word this morning, and we, we even ask the question, what time is it? We want to be faithful as your people. Give us eyes to see, Lord. Give us eyes. Give us hearts. (laughs) Give us hearts to believe. Teach us, God, how to be. Teach us, Lord, how to live for your glory. By your spirit, work in our life. Convict us of sin. Let us live confessionally and repentantly. And Lord, if there's any this morning who is struggling with this belief, with responding to you and rejecting or rejecting you, I I pray that you would strengthen their soul to believe upon you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would hear the cry and the praise of your people this morning. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.